Good afternoon. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I know I've already talked and I meant to introduce myself earlier, but my name is Joel McCarty um, and I'm the pastor for preaching here at New Eden. Um, I'm just excited to be here gathering with you all and jumping into the book of John. Um, as we know, it's a new year and I'm excited about what God has in store. I do want to say thank you, and I know I said this a minute ago, but Thank you for hopping on board with the mission that God has given us. Um, I know I say that a lot, but it's truly because I am in awe um, with what God is doing, and it's not because any of you in and of yourselves are just that amazing, but you do bear the image of your Creator, and He is at work and in our midst, and so I'm excited about that. We're simply stumbling forward together, um, just trusting that our labor is not in vain because God will build the house, and so we surrender that to Him. So most of the time, as we launch into a new year, we would take the opportunity to um, recast some vision, to talk about some topics that are super important to us, share the vision of our church. Um, but as we talked about it as a preaching team, and at first I was in the minority because I was wanting to still do what we typically would do, um, but I was convinced by the end of it that it would be best for us to just dive into the gospel of John. And so I'm excited for other uh, men and women that are willing to, to press back. And so I I'm super excited about it. Um, also, as we thought about it, we recently went through some extensive teaching on vision back in um, July when we were doing some online stuff. And so there is a four-week series that if you're more interested in our mission and vision and who we are just at our core, then I encourage you to go watch that series. It's called Flourish. You can find it on our app or the website, and it just walks through the vision of our church. Um, but since we are in a new year, I did want to just remind us, because it's easy to forget, and just take a moment and reiterate what our vision and mission are. At New Eden, we say all the time, our vision, which is the long-term like gold, if we could have everything we wanted, our vision is not ultimately about us, it's the flourishing of Decatur for the good of the world and the glory of God. And so we believe that the good news of Jesus has implications for our city and the people in our city, and that they would experience peace and shalom and joy and rest and flourishing. And we believe that this is only truly found as they experience union with Jesus. And as that happens, we believe that we will not be able to keep that inside. And as we see inhabitants and in our city flourish, that that will flood to the ends of the earth because we know that God's glory is gonna flood every square inch. And so we wanna be a part of that in the here and now. We know it'll happen in its fullness one day when Jesus comes back, but we say, why wait? Um, that's why we say all the time, it's not about us, it's about God's glory. Ultimately, all of this is for the glory of God, not for any of our own glory. And that's why we always have to make sure that our vision, which we believe this does come from Scripture, comes from Scripture. It's, it aligns with God's vision. It's not about some fancy marketing ploy or putting some words together that rhyme or are alliterated or sound nice. It's ultimately about the vision that God has given us in the Scriptures. And then we talk about our mission. So that's big picture, high-level view. So our mission, though, what do we actually do as we are on this journey of seeing that vision accomplished? Well, the part that we play, and we say our mission is to make disciples who worship King Jesus, abide in King Jesus, and reflect King Jesus to the world around us in all of life. We don't ultimately believe that the mission of the church is building programs or building buildings or just funneling people in the doors so we look good on paper and our spreadsheets are trending in the right direction. No, the metric of success for us as a church is faithful discipleship. That's the metric. It's not always clean or romantic. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's gritty. Um, it looks like we're going to see in the book of John sometimes. Sometimes there's doubt, there's wrestling, but it's the way of Jesus. 
And we mean it when we say our mission, we want to see more people worshiping Jesus more. We want to see more people abiding and finding their fulfillment in the life of Jesus and not things of this age. And as that happens, we will make disciples who reflect that image and glory of God to the entire earth. And that's in all of life, in the Monday through Saturday, not just here when we're doing the churchy thing. We're glad you're here. We love the Sunday gathering. We think it's an important rhythm in the life of the believer for health. But it's not ultimately where we see the discipleship or the, sorry, the beauty of Jesus on display. It's through disciples in the everyday, whatever it is you're gifted in. We're going to see that some more today. But it's reflected in the everyday engagement of his disciples as you worship him through your work, through your recreation, through your job, through your schooling, your education, through your parenting, through your being a child, whatever it is, that that is how God is ultimately reflected. So that's a very quick flyover and refresher of our vision and mission. Again, if you want to hear that more in full, we also have some core truths, three core truths that guide us as we go on that that are important. And we talk about all that in the series. But today, we're diving into John. Now, you're going to get a lot of information um, in a short amount of time, hopefully short amount of time, right? Um, but let me say this up front. Don't feel like you have to capture everything. I was telling our preaching team this. I feel like going into a book, I typically like to have a pretty good grasp of like the overall vision of the book before we go into it. And I feel like in the last couple of days, I've probably gotten there with John, but I'm still like so far behind. Um, and, and really, I think that's part of John's point. Um, the depths, and he even says, like, I could tell you so much more at the end of the book, he says this, but I, I, all the books in the world, I couldn't contain everything, all these things that go on and happen. I, I just told you some specific things to make some points. And so don't feel like you've got to grasp everything. The point of this sermon and the point I even believe of the prologue of John, which is the first 18 verses, we're not going to, we're just looking at the first five today, is to just whet your appetite and hopefully encourage you to let's dive deeper and see what he says. We've subtitled this series, For God So Loved. Many of you will recognize what that's from, um, John 3, 16, uh, which most of you can probably quote since it's the most recognizable verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You get it in the King James in the quote. It's going to be different in the version you're reading because that's what I grew up on memorizing. Um, but it's very sweet and simple, but it doesn't mean it's not deep. So in this series, as we look at the life of Jesus, what we want to do for you is put on display the life-transforming love of God, that God in the person of Jesus was willing to sacrifice his own life to beat death and sin and give us hope for life. And that's a message that especially if you've grown up in church, like many of you in the South have, that we've heard time and time again. We've heard the message, Jesus loves me. It's a truth we all know on paper. We heard it and we sang it in Sunday school maybe growing up. But often if we're honest, we struggle to believe that in our hearts. We forget. And when life just hits you right in between the eyes, we doubt that we could really be known and loved in the ways that John tells us on these pages to sit on the bosom of Jesus and receive his love. So we want to ask the Spirit to meet us through the pages of this gospel as we explore the depths of this love. And that love's going to start right on page one, and we're going to look at that in a second. But before we dive into our text, as we do with most, most series that we go into, we want to give a quick introduction of just the entire book. We think it's helpful to know the context. 
um, of where, who the author was and who he was writing to. So just some quick things. First of all, who wrote the gospel according to John? Who was the author? Um, you might be surprised to know it was a guy by the name of John. Most likely there were multiple Johns um, in the scriptures and around the time of Jesus. Um, the book actually itself never says the author is John, believe it or not. Um, it never claims its own authorship by name. Um, and there are some scholars who would disagree that maybe this wasn't written by a guy named John. But honestly, and I don't have time to go into all of it. The general consensus among scholars is that it was the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee. Not to be confused with John the Baptist. We're going to see him next week. Um, but the author is John, the son of Zebedee. Also the same guy who wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and most likely the same John that wrote the book of Revelation. Now, along with John, there are three other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as Kevin said, John is much different in many ways. Um, most likely, this gospel account was the last one to be written, probably sometime in the 80s or 90s, so quite a bit after the life and death of Jesus. Um, from church history, we believe that John uh, the apostle was probably one of the only one of Jesus's 12 disciples that wasn't martyred. Um, and so he was able to live longer and write some of these books for us. Um, it seems that a big piece, and I love this, of John's life purpose was actually to write these letters and this gospel narrative to edify and encourage the church. And I love that he was content with that kind of opposed to Peter and Paul, who were like these pillars of the church, who had these kind of upfront on the stage um, personalities, and that's what God called them to. Um, John was just content to just write about this Jesus who he knew. And that's also why I believe in the book, John never refers to himself by name, because it's not important. Instead, he refers to himself constantly as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now that can seem weird, but I think John's making a theological point that what was most important to him was not his name or his place in the kingdom of God. It was simply that he was loved by God. And that's beautiful. That defined him more than anything else. And we've got to remember, this is the same John whose mom, and in one account he was, begging to be at the right hand of God in this position of power and authority when he thought God, Jesus was going to bring this kingdom, this physical kingdom. He wanted that position of power. And he went from that to a position of anonymity. And what changed for him? It's because he experienced the love of Jesus. He experienced the gospel and it transformed and changed everything for him. And he wants others to experience Jesus in this same way. And that's where we hear the purpose of this book. If you look, this will be on the screen at the end of the book, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, towards the very end, we see that John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these, the ones I did write, are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John tells us straight up the purpose why he wrote this gospel narrative. So that people would believe that Jesus was who he said he was, and that through that belief, life would come and take place. So this was written to encourage, I believe, both believers and unbelievers to trust more fully in this Jesus. Now, John doesn't paint this pretty picture where we always trust perfectly. We're going to see doubting Thomas. We're going to see Peter deny Jesus. But through it all, we see the faithfulness of Jesus. And we see that because of the cross and resurrection that proves that Jesus is who he says he is, that at the end of the day, we can throw our hopes and our fears and our dreams and our wants and our longings all on the person of Jesus and that he will take care of us. 
And hopefully as we do that, we will increase our trust in the resurrected Messiah. I hope that's the outcome of our time in this book. Um, as we go through the book, an important thing to remember that John is primarily a theological work before it is a historical one, okay? It's important for us to see that because more than any other gospel, John takes some liberties with the stories. Um, he does that on purpose because he's making a theological point. In our Western way of thinking, we like a very chronological layout of a biography, and that's what we expect from John. But we see John place the Jesus in the temple on Passover week before his crucifixion towards the very beginning of the book. And some people have tried to account for this by saying, well, there were two different times where Jesus cleansed the temple. Maybe there was, but I think John's making a theological point. And so he wants to tell these stories in an order that makes a theological point for us. And so we've got to get outside of kind of our box and Western way of thinking. John wants to make his theological point that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of history. We're going to see him both implicitly and explicitly refer to both the nation of Israel and the entire history of the world to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. Through John, we're going to see that he's the new creation. He's the true temple. He's the true Passover lamb, the true bread, provision for weary souls. He's wisdom personified. He's the fulfillment of the Torah. He's the better Sabbath and so much more. We're going to see all these things as we go through the book of John. And John's genius in the way he does this. I'm not someone who's big on numerology, um, but I think John's super intentional with the number seven. Um, it's the number of completion or fulfillment. And we're going to see specifically that there's seven signs that lead up to the final sign of resurrection. There's going to be seven discourses and conversations that lead up to the final discourse with his disciples. There'll be seven I am statements where Jesus identifies himself as the great I am. There'll also be seven I am responses when people ask Jesus a question and he says, I am, which tells, him, tells us of his deity. And that's all going to lead up to the vast number of witnesses of Jesus as the resurrected Lord. So we're going to see all these things. We're going to see that the Bible, the point of this right here is to see Jesus. It's not just about words on a text and to fill our minds with knowledge so we're smarter and we say, oh, that's really cool. No, the whole point of John is so that we see and experience the love of Jesus up close and personal. He is who he says he is, the anointed Messiah and King and Savior of the world. So quickly, for those who want, let me give you a quick outline of the book. Um, first, 18 verses of chapter 1 is a prologue or introduction to the book. John is himself writing this prologue or introduction. And then through the rest of chapter 1, verses 19 through 51, we're going to see the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When John the Baptist is his forerunner, we're going to see him call um, his first disciples. And then in chapter 2, all the way through the end of chapter 12, we're going to see a bunch of Jesus' public signs and discourses and conversations he has with other people. And so John spends a lot of time there. And then in chapter 13, all the way through the end of chapter 17, we're going to see this longer discourse that he has with his disciples. Um, and so he's having this private final discourse with his disciples before he heads into Passion Week or as a part of Passion Week before he heads to the cross. And then in uh, chapter 18 through close to the end of chapter 20, we see his final sign, which is his own cross and resurrection. So we've got the seven public signs. The seventh one is Lazarus being raised. And then the final one is Jesus himself raising from the dead. Um, and then in 20, verse 30 and 31, we see the purpose of the book. We just read that a minute ago. And so John inserts that there. And then he has this epilogue. 
to kind of close the book and this commissioning of his disciples to then go on mission. What does it mean that Jesus is now risen from the dead, right? And so we see Jesus restore his disciples and send them on mission. So obviously to start, we're going to find ourselves right in the prologue of the book. Um, We're going to spend about three weeks preaching through the first 18 verses. There's so much here. Um, Through the entire prologue, John's going to do what any good writer would do. Um, He's going to whet the appetite for the rest of his book. He's going to give you teasers as to what he's going to talk about, give you a little bit of uh, just kind of drawing you into the case he's making. And so kind of in keeping with the text, uh, because we spent a lot of time at introduction, we're going to go fairly quickly through the first five verses. But everything we talk about, it's going to come back up at some point in the book. And so let's just dive in. I've got three things we're going to look at today in the first five verses. We're going to see the identity of the Word, the work of the Word, and the victory of the Word. The identity of the Word, who is the Word, the work of the Word, and then the victory of the Word. So start by looking at the identity of the word in verse one. In the beginning was the word. Okay, so this person, this word is Jesus. We're gonna see that more fully in a second, but it's no secret. And so different, Kevin even mentioned this a minute ago, different than other gospel writers, uh, John doesn't actually start at the birth of Jesus. He goes even further back. He doesn't even go with Matthew and start at Jesus's genealogy. He goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the word. We're tempted to ask, in the beginning of what, right? But John doesn't explain. He simply just says, in the beginning, the word existed. The word Jesus simply was. Clearly, John wants to draw to attention in our mind the opening words of the Torah, or what we know as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The first words of the scripture started with, in the beginning as well. And this Torah, this five books were the center of Jewish life. It was the guidestone for everything. It was where life and death supposedly could be found. And it started with a simple claim that in the beginning, Yahweh existed. No outside affirmation. The fact in and of itself was its own witness. Yahweh just simply existed. And here John makes the same exact claim about the word, that in the beginning, the word simply was. John wants to draw to our mind that this word, this Jesus, this is important for us to see, he is the fulfillment of all of history. Not just Israel, so that's a big piece of it. They play a big part, but he is everything that we've ever heard of and longed for. He's the anointed one and he's always been. There's never been a time where this word has not been uncreated, always existing from eternity past. And by saying this in the beginning here, conjuring up thoughts of the first creation story that his hearers would have known of so well, he is making it clear that a new creation is coming in this anointed one, the Messiah. And then we look at this word, word, the word word that John chooses here. It's a Greek word that some of you might have heard. I might butcher it. Um, Logos, I think is the best way. Logos. Um, And it's a Greek word for the word word. In the beginning was the word, this capitalized word here. Now, it's hard for us to fully grasp this word in our English language. Um, It has the idea of not just someone speaking, but an active and authoritative word. Um, It's actually speaking life and things into existence. It's what we hear of when we hear that the word of God is going forth. Look at Isaiah chapter 55 on the screen. So my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. 
This, this word ultimately isn't about a physical text, and I want to be clear, it includes the physical text, the Bible, the words of God, the revelation of God on page, it includes that, but it's so much more. It's the will and the rule and the reign of God coming to pass. What he desires and what he declares will happen. And so John draws us back to the creating power of the word of God at creation. When God spoke, and simply because he spoke, it was. He said it, and so it existed. That's how life came to be. So he's intentionally identifying Jesus with the new creation. Jesus is the will and word and work of God in a person made flesh dwelling among us. He's also most likely drawing on some other ideas like any good author would. Um, John can be so simple at first reading, yet so deep. Uh, there was a common thought in the Greek world of this logos as the thoughts and wisdom that held everything together. And if you could kind of be in tune with the logos then it, and, and you would be in tune with its principles, you would kind of find true life. You hear principles like Zen or things like that today. And John says, that's not where you ultimately find life. It's again in a person, Jesus. For his Jewish audience who had the Torah, Sometimes the Torah would be understood as the logos, the center of their teaching, where you find wisdom and life. And so even though it was spiritualized, John wants to make sure that you can't just spiritualize a physical text. Like ultimately, it's about knowing the person and work of Jesus, and that's where you find life, not through the Torah. And so for anyone who might be tempted to look elsewhere, John makes it clear that we must gaze on the person and work of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and the word was with God. With God. The word with here has this connotation of being toward or facing God. It's not as much relationship here. We'll see that in just a second as it is status. That Moses, who was revered by these people because he saw the hind parts of God's glory and he got glimpses of God's glory in opposition to him, the better Moses got to stare face to face with the Father from eternity past. And then we see that he was God. I'm not going to spend much time on this here. This would have been a radical claim into this context, but John simply says the word was God. Yes, he's 100% humanity made flesh, but he is 100% deity because he is God. He's the same God that was there at creation in the beginning. If you want to know what God is like, look to the face of Jesus. And then he says, it seems repetitive, but in verse two, he says, he was with God in the beginning. Sounds very similar to what he just said. Um, normally though, when John does this, he's gonna do this a lot. He's trying to get and expand on the ideas. He's saying the same thing, kind of two different ways to get his point across and expanding on the first idea. Most likely that's what he's doing here. Here, it seems that the connotation has more to do with relationship. Whereas in the previous statement, it was more about Jesus' relationship with the Father and before the Father. Now it is about, sorry, about his status before the Father. Now it's about his relationship with the Father. Also, I think John is drawing on Proverbs. If you remember Proverbs, it's, we were told that wisdom was with God in the beginning. And John wants to make sure we know that true life doesn't come from this earthly wisdom, uh, but rather from a person, Jesus. And so we start to see the identity of this word. And then next we see the work of the word. So we've seen who Jesus is, but what does this Jesus do? What is his work? And so look at verse three. 
It says, all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Very clear. Jesus here is presented as the creating agent through which all things come into being. Everything that has been created, everything that will be created, including physical life, but not limited to it. In John's gospel, he is also the creating agent through which ultimate spiritual life can be found. And this idea of creation, it's important for us to understand, doesn't just have to do with creating something from nothing, though that's a piece of it. We believe that God did that. But the Jewish understanding of creation had so much to do with bringing order from chaos. When birds were told to go in the sky and fish were told to go in the sea and, and humans were sent there as God's uh, vice regents to have, bring order from all the chaos and to spread the rule and reign of God. And so in the first creation, God creates this shalom, this dwelling place for God and humanity to commune together. And this is what Jesus, and John is saying that Jesus is doing, is he is recreating this place of shalom through union with himself. That's what we see next. That's where true life is found. He says in verse four, in him, in this word, in Jesus was life, and that life, his life, was the light of men. So he's both life and light. And so through Jesus comes life, again, conjuring up creation imagery. John will touch on this later, but it's through this life-giving power that we also receive what we would say spiritual awakening or light or revelation. He'll touch on this when he talks about blind eyes being made to see. And so only through the creating power of Jesus can we experience true life and true light. And so because of the identity of this word, you have to get this, his works flow from who he is. Because he is God, he creates. And so what does he do? He creates life and light even in the midst of darkness. And that's what we see last, the victory of the word. Look at verse five. That light shines in the darkness. I'm gonna let that sit for a second. That light, the light of Jesus, shines in the darkness. By God's grace, through the incarnation, Jesus shines in dark places. We'll see it more in a couple weeks, but the fact that God came and dwelt among humanity is incredible. And we don't talk about it enough. It's not just at Christmas that we talk about it. Great time to focus on it. But we've got to see this all the time. As humans, we brought rebellion and chaos and darkness, and this world was and is a huge mess. But the incarnation proves that Jesus cares enough to do something about it, and he gets what it's like because he enters into flesh and experiences it. And he came into the mess and the chaos and the darkness, and he's shown his light to bring order from the chaos. God reveals himself to an undeserving, broken humanity in a way that we could understand it. That's incredible. And here's the thing, though. It's not just that God came and empathized with us and wept with us. Look at verse 5. Yet the darkness did not overcome it. He didn't just see our plight and say, man, that sucks. I'm sorry you guys are going through that. He left heaven's throne and crawled down into the mess and dealt with the problem. Even though the light and life of men was snuffed out by the serpent in the garden, 
Even though mankind brings chaos and destruction, there is one who stayed faithful in the midst of temptation. There is one who overcame the enemy and crushed his head into the dust. And there is one who will put an end to all suffering and war and strife and sin. And his name is Jesus and the darkness cannot overcome it because he reigns victorious. And for John's readers, who may be like us, so far removed from the cross and resurrection, and we're sitting in this already not yet in the midst of our suffering and our pain and in the midst of a dark world, sometimes we forget that Jesus won. And so John right away wants to remind them that just as true as creation, just as true as the sun rises every morning, even more true in the same way Jesus rose victorious over sin and death and the darkness could not overcome it. This is why the cross and resurrection matters. That's why it's what it's all about. That's why that's what we put on display every week. That's why we're not just going to give you some facts about John, write them down and go home. That doesn't have power to change you. All it might do is puff you up. But the gospel, the cross and resurrection of Jesus is what has the power to actually transform our lives and bring new creation and life. Cool facts about Jesus and about the gospel of John. Don't do that. And if that's all we hear, we can take Jesus. You know what we can do? We can twist him to advance our own agenda, make them into our own image instead of being made into his. That's why we have to look to how Jesus beat the darkness. And it's so radically different from what we think about winning a war. When you think of Jesus pushing back the darkness and not allowing the darkness to overcome him. I mean, if you ask me, come with a mighty army, right? Beat everyone down who questions you or disagrees with you. But this Jesus loved his enemies, even unto death. And he laid down his own life. I mean, he was so backwards that even his disciples, who believed he was the Messiah and walked with him for years, when Jesus said, hey, I'm about to go die, they didn't even hear it. Like, they must have thought it was metaphorical or something. Because they didn't get it. They wouldn't believe it. But in his death, he absorbs the results of the darkness and chaos that we had created. Everything that we learned about Jesus today as the word, we're the opposite of. We're not in union with God. We don't deserve, we can't stare at the face of God. We would be destroyed. We are unholy. We are not in union with him. We don't create life in order. By nature, we create destruction and chaos. Even from a young age, that's our natural bit. I got to get on my kids all the time when they push each other because they want the Xbox controller. And I have to ask them, I get down on their level and I say, hey, why did God give you your hands? And they know now to say, to protect, to love, to build up. And I say, that's right, not to destroy, not to tear down. And we get older and maybe we stop doing it with our hands and we start doing it with our mouths. We're no different. We tear down, we bring chaos. And the world is full of darkness. We just look around and we see the darkness and the lostness of the world, blind and hopeless. And it's easy to point fingers at everybody else and every other political party and whatever else we want to do till we look and see the darkness in our own hearts and say, we are broken. And we try to deal with it. We try to just fix it on our own power. And all we do is make a bigger mess. We need God himself to show up. And that's what he does. Jesus as flesh God made flesh, walked right into the belly of the beast on the cross. And he gives himself up 
to the violent urges of mankind. He's the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and he allows himself to be destroyed by power-hungry, selfish men. And as he does so, he absorbs the full wrath of the father on sin and he takes the best shot that death, hell, and the grave can give him. And as they laid him in the darkness, in a cold, dark tomb, reserved for bodies to rot and stink and decay, because that's what bodies did. Little did they know that in his death, he was waging the greatest war ever fought against darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus got back up and beat death by dying. He overcame sin by becoming sin, and he took the energy that the enemy had thrown on him and turned it back on his own head and brought life and light and new creation and flourishing for everyone who believes. And so because the word is victorious, because he rules and reigns and he's the one sitting at the right hand of the father, you now have an invitation to receive his identity as the sons and daughters of God. You can be one with the father. And when he comes back, you're going to get to stare into his beautiful face for all of eternity. And you're never going to be distracted by all the stuff of this age. And so what is your work in this? Now go get busy and do it right. No, look at John 6. These people wanted control. They wanted to do something. They said, what can we do to perform the works of God? They asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. And we don't like this. We want something tangible to do. We want to we fix the mess we created because then guess what? We get credit and we get glory. But stop. Jesus has done the work, so stop trying. Give it up to him. Let your life go, and I promise you, you will find what it means to truly live. Because God so loved, he sent Jesus to meet us where we are, to battle darkness on our behalf and win. And now you are invited into the story here in Alabama. You right now in the here and now are invited to this. And when we get that new identity, when we grasp that, just like Jesus, we begin to act out of who we are. Not to earn favor, not so God doesn't get ticked off at us, but because it's simply who we are. Through the power of the gospel, through the work of the Spirit in our hearts, we can actually begin to live this way. We can begin to love our enemies. We can begin to be little creators, or what I call recreators, right? Bringing order from chaos, bringing beauty from ashes, bringing light in the darkness, speaking life into dead things. And this is in the everyday. It's not just, you know, the stuff that we see um, that we want the big stuff. It's the simple things. Not easy, but simple. Forgiving when we're wronged. Speaking out for the weak. Believing the stories of the abused. Speaking truth to power on their behalf. Fighting for the vulnerable. Remembering someone's name that everybody else looks over. Maybe just cooking breakfast or dinner. That's what Jesus did for his disciples when they were, had betrayed him. He said, come eat breakfast. Calls them children. Give them a place of rest. Tell someone to slow down and stop working so much. Give them freedom to rest. Live incarnate lives. Walking into people's mess just like Jesus walked into ours. And these are things Jesus did and we can do in the everyday. 
Most of you know Clint and Sarah Bath. They're some of our core members here. Um, recently, and I asked Clint permission to share this, but he's been getting into detailing cars. And I didn't realize the amount of work. I think, oh, you know, clean a car, go to 799 Mr. Car Wash and get the free vacuum and clean out your car, you know? Um, and so he offered to detail my wife's car for us. Um, you should have seen it before. We have four young kids. Uh, my wife would probably be embarrassed. She's back there with some kids. I didn't ask her permission. I probably should have done that. Um, but, you know, hamburgers everywhere that are like, you know, hard as can be, like rocks, you could throw them because they've been in there so long. You know, French fries, gummies stuck to everything. I mean, just an absolute nightmare, right? And so Clint takes his car and he cleans it, spends a lot of time, I don't know how much, at least a couple of days, and he gives it back to us and it looks and smells brand new. You're like, I didn't know this was possible. I mean, it's like we got a brand new vehicle, right? And, and, there was almost a thought when he invited, you know, offered to do it. I was like, man, that's just like, give it three months. It's going to be back there again, right? Like, why are we doing this? Uh, that's a lot of work and energy. It's going to get messy again. So why do it? But here's the thing, and I believe Clint believes this, and this is what, what I saw, that it's not always, you know, this big stuff. It's not standing up here preaching. It's the every day that that's a signpost. That's a foretaste. That's bringing order from chaos, and that's sacred. It's spiritual, that kind of work. And whatever it is for you, however you're gifted and whatever it is you're called to do, doing that from the power of the spirit, bringing order from chaos, bringing new creation, you are giving signposts, pointing forward to a day when the car won't ever get messy again. And we're probably gonna drive cars in a new creation. They probably won't be minivans. Maybe some of you will, but they're not gonna get messy again. And we're gonna create, but we're not gonna have to go back and, and fix the order because it's gonna be, there's gonna be no more chaos. Jesus is going to cast all that in the sea as we see in Revelation. But right now in the here and now, every time we clean a van, we're pushing back the darkness just a little bit more and saying the chaos doesn't win. That's why we engage in the everyday stuff, working from our identity, in our gifts, who God created us to be. And one day when Jesus returns, he's going to put all things to right. And so he's the one with the strength. It's his power that we work in. Don't get it confused. We're not doing all that to earn his favor. We're doing it because of our identity. And so when we're confident in him, we can say again, like the little child in Sunday school, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. That's us. They are weak. That's us. But he is strong. This is what the love of Jesus does.